0: So uh, I got Clint from Liberty Lockdown talking with me today, and I, I came across Clint um, on Twitter like, I don't know, midway through 2020 or something when I'm just I'm, taking, I'm paying keen attention to the few accounts out there, especially those calling themselves libertarians, which you think would be pretty easy, uh, who are actually resisting lockdowns and just bullshit and COVID tyrannical technocracy. And Liberty Lockdown kept popping up, so I find glad to hear it. Us, start listening, and uh, it's absolutely awesome. So Clint like came out of nowhere with this Liberty Lockdown podcast, and he's crushing it. I saw you; you got like a hundred thousand downloads last month, or something.
1: Uh, Fifty thousand downloads last month, but a hundred thousand downloads all time. So I am I am in the truly parabolic phase of growth right now. So,
0: yeah. So in one month, you got. Double what you got previous to that, and it's been what a year or so.
1: Uh, yeah, eleven months now.
0: It's incredible, man! It's incredible. I, Congratulations! I, I mean, I, I know that. a big reason is that well, for one, the quality is awesome, and you, you know you 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 have good interviews, you got a lot of good stuff to say yourself. But two, you're just beasting it out. I mean, you're just cranking. You're you're, <laughs> you're lining up guests, you're recording nonstop, which is absolutely awesome.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I'm taking it like a a full time job almost. It's really. It's my passion, man. This is like, this is what I love to do. It's what I love to talk about. And the fact that I I saw a window of opportunity because the LP failed so egregiously to represent the libertarians that actually believe in liberty. Uh, I was like, okay, well, here's my window. And then, uh, you know, once Pete Quinones had me on and then Dave Smith uh, had me on part of the problem and it was all
0: exclusive after that. So for those who don't know uh, the LP means the libertarian party. Yes. uh, And, um, uh, you're kind of like, you're kind of in the mix with it. And I, I've like observed this a little bit at a distance. I mean, I really did not have not really ever followed Libertarian party closely, but especially not in the last 10 years, 15 years, cause I just haven't followed politics closely at all. But in the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of people who I like, Dave Smith, the comedian, Libertarian guy, who's been on Joe Rogan several times and uh, Michael Malice a friend of mine who's um kind of running in those circles and then I've seen some of these other sort of libertarian podcaster twitter accounts and whatever like trying to basically take over the libertarian party and use it uh as a vehicle to you know to actually I don't know spread the ideas that it's <laughs> supposed to stand that for. it's supposed to yeah so, so is this is this something that you're like have you been involved in the libertarian party for a long time
1: no actually um I, I'm basically a, a second gen, you know, born and raised libertarian from my dad's side, but uh, I, I had never been involved in the LP. I, I really wasn't interested in in politics uh, officially. You know, I, I I was very much involved and informed, but I wasn't interested in being involved. And I still I still am not really interested in being involved, to be honest. But <laughs> but it's just that I I was like. All I, all I needed was the Libertarian Party. Like, I don't expect them to win. I don't expect them to prevail. I just expected them to continue to carry on the torch of my beliefs. That's all I wanted. So when the lockdowns first happened, I just wanted them to be saying, this is not American. Like, if they, if that's how they want to frame it, if they want to go the nationalist route, fine. I don't care. I just wanted them to say, this isn't acceptable. And they didn't do
0: it. Um, yeah, so they that- could be like, this, you know violates basic philosophical principles of libertarianism or it's unconstitutional or anything American or it's unfair or it's you <laughs> know, like there's a million things you could say <laughs> and I, for, I was I was old again only at a distance but from my understanding the sort of official libertarian party uh, just kind of had a very milquetoast tepid sort of like be careful out there you know Uh, I mean, I I even saw that this wasn't the Libertarian Party, but I saw some Libertarian organizations with like hashtags like stay home, save lives, like from like Libertarian. I, I mean, I don't know. So is this kind of what the LP's approach was just very safe?
1: Yeah, no, it was it was very much an appeal to authority. They were just they were very tepid, just playing it safe, kind of waiting to see how bad is the virus, as opposed to coming out on principle and saying regardless of how severe this pandemic may end up being we oppose the government enacting tyrannical laws to address it like that's what i wanted to hear if it was the black plague i would have had the same perspective you know that's just that's that's principle that's what the libertarian party is supposed to have is the principle that liberty is more important than perception of safety and they they abdicated that role they didn't do it so that's that's why i started to to really chime in that's i think that's why i i had so many people that were also disappointed in the lp start to follow me and to push my show as well um, but it was never it was never my intent actually to get involved with the lp it's just that this mises caucus thing kind of came into my circle and i realized that everybody involved in the mises caucus saw this the same way i did and when i saw that i was like oh there are some actual libertarians that exists still, so this is tremendous. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and help these guys out.
0: You know, I maybe and maybe, maybe all the people like yourself and Dave Smith and all you know the Mises Caucus and all these people, maybe that is proof that I'm wrong about this. But I, I would have said, um, Libertarian Party just doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Nobody pays attention to it. They have no influence. So, like, what's the point? What's there to save? So, I'm curious what your thought is to that. Like, what? Why are you trying to? do something with this. It's, it's, it's a political party. No one gives a shit about your podcast is more influential than they are. So who cares? (laughs) You know what I mean?
1: It's a, it's a totally fair critique. Um, I, I think that that because there are people that believe that political action is necessary and they believe that, that you need to have a voice within the political realm, the official political realm. uh, I think that it's just important that, if you're going to have a, like, I've said this before, if you're going to have a party that calls itself the libertarian party, it has to be messaging what I actually believe in. That's all I'm saying. Otherwise, I'm okay with it not existing. Honestly, like, I just can't have someone out there who is representing me, allegedly, who is bastardizing my philosophy and my belief system. So when I saw an opportunity for either since there was no opportunity to abolish the LP well I was like okay well then we might as well make sure that it's at least messaging for freedom and liberty uh, yeah. so that, that that's really the the I, I guess the principle behind what I'm doing
0: yeah no it's interesting I I sort of um so I remember way back when I used to be I used to run a lot of uh programs on college campuses all across the state of Michigan and when I first started it was 2007 and I'd be like free economy, uh, students for a free economy is this organization i had set up and he was running and people were like, what's a free economy? And nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew what I was talking about. And so often I would find students who found the student libertarian group. They would, they would find us and find it really cool. And they were great to work with. And the way that most of the students found it was they get to campus, they're politically interested. And they're like, I don't like what Republicans say. I don't like what Democrats say. And this is like a big growing up moment for them because their parents inevitably are Republican or Democrat. And they reject what their parents like and they reject the alternative. And they say, well, what else is there? And they start by looking at other political parties. Mm -hmm. And so they look at the Green Party and they looked at, and a lot of them would find libertarianism because they would find the college libertarian club, which was usually affiliated with the party. And so like the fact that it was there was useful. And I almost think now, I don't think that that, college experience is very relevant anymore because most things are online and people aren't looking through the list of college clubs to find new ideas tragically yes but i think the libertarian party you could almost it's almost like a wikipedia page like <laughs> the wikipedia page for libertarianism it's it, like if you like those ideas it's it's important that it like is you know as correct as it can be is as, as clear and and accurate as it can be in representing the ideas and the history behind them. And that's kind of like the LP, like people are going to look there, whether you like it or not, it's not the most important thing in the world, but it matters because it's the first place. A lot of people start.
1: Exactly. And, and if you're like me, you probably believe that there are a tremendous amount of people, particularly in America that are libertarian, but they don't, they don't know it. Uh, So I just, I just want there to be that platform for, those that are saying, I don't agree with the conservatives on XYZ, I don't agree with the Democrats on XYZ, I'm not either of these things. What am I? And if they then have the Libertarian Party come out and go and, you know, stay home, save a life, and they're like, I don't, I don't understand. You know, I thought I I thought I didn't agree with, you know. So that and and it's the same principle of like if I saw Wikipedia saying that the libertarians, you know, love John Brennan, I'd be like, I'm going to submit an entry to get that removed because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. obviously false. So I guess it's, that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying to correct it, the record.
0: <laughs> no. And, and it's, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very much a uh, political atheist and, and very much just from learning through my own experience, not a fan of sort of using politics as a way to, to make the world more free, but there's one, there's one way in which politics not real. It's like, because politicians in our culture are both politicians and celebrities. They're two different roles at the same time. And whether we like it or not, you become a celebrity just by trying to be a politician. And so celebrities have bigger platforms than most people, right? Politicians are horrible pieces of shit. But sometimes, like when Ron Paul, so when I, when I was going on campuses in 2007, as I mentioned, nobody knew what the hell I was talking about. 2008 comes. Back to campus in the fall. This is the first time Ron Paul ran. And it was like night and day. It was easy. People would be like, Students for a free economy. Is that like Ron Paul stuff? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, it's it's free markets and, and the Fed and all that stuff. And like people got it because there was a celebrity voicing those things. Ron Paul, the politician, was basically ineffective. Like, I don't think he got any real bills passed or stopped anything. But Ron Paul, the celebrity, actually, a, a lot of people became more freedom loving and learned to live more free in their own lives. And actually a lot of people became non-political because they started with hearing Ron Paul and saying, Hey, that guy's different. Right. And whatever small stage he was afforded on debates and whatever else um, was something that sort of normie people were tuning into. And a lot of them heard something for the first time. So I I can kind of see that strategy.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, there is a hero worship culture in america like it or not so people particularly like libertarians and and anarchists are very opposed to hero worship and they're like we're into individuality and we don't need leaders and blah 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 i'm like like hey i get it i am i am like you but at the same time if you know 80 percent of this country that isn't like us they need leaders bro like they, they need to have someone who is popularizing concepts and normalizing ideas. And Ron Paul did it better than anybody. So like, yeah, I, I mean, I consider Ron Paul, one of my heroes, even though I'm not much of a hero worship type of guy because he broke so many people from their, their sleep. You know, he, he really did. And, and I think that that's what I envision with Dave Smith is that I think he can do the same thing, but to the next generation. And, and I hope he will. Um, so that's, I guess that's, that's my hope. I uh, ultimately I don't believe that this system is salvageable. So like a lot yeah. of people think, think that I'm delusional, like, Oh, the, Oh, Dave Smith's going to be president. Oh, everything's going to be fixed. Like, <laughs> look, we're 30 trillion in debt. Like, I don't think this system is, is salvageable. So all I'm trying to do is have someone who is famous ish, get a little bit more famous, talk that Liberty shit as he says it, um, send my message to more and more normies to try and wake enough people up that we can create some semblance of Liberty from the ashes of what I, you know, of the collapse. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's important. So that's, that's why I'm interested in doing it.
0: It's funny. I heard you um, interview uh, Vin Armani um, who I'm, you know, very, very fascinated by, and I interviewed him as well. And he was talking about like, it's, I haven't seen the Twitter thread, but apparently Vin Armani and, Dave Smith sort of gotten into some kind of uh, Twitter fracas or something over, yeah. over this strategy over Dave trying to like take over the libertarian party. And it's, it's funny. Cause like, I basically agree with everything Vin is saying, but I also am like, I almost feel like Vin's critiques assume, assume that success is actually possible. Success is an electoral victory and I, think and so I don't so. think it is. And I think the metric for success is just different. You're just saying, can we utilize a political party to get more coverage for voices talking about liberty? It's a, it's a PR play, yeah. um, which I think sort of changes it a little bit.
1: I think that's exactly right. They're And they're really talking past each other. And it's tragic because I love both of them. And I think that they both are headed in the same direction. And if they would just talk, it would probably be alleviated that any of the stress would be gone. But um, you know Vin's a, a pretty antagonistic dude on Twitter and, and he <laughs> went he went hard in the paint with some uh, insults very early on and I think that 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 made a genuine conversation almost impossible so I hope that cooler heads can prevail and they can they can converse openly hopefully on one of their platforms to to talk about this because they're both they are both headed towards trying to wake up and save as many people as possible. Vin may deny that. He may say, I don't have any savior complex. I think he does. I mean, I think we all do. Anybody who's talking about liberty uh, is interested in, in waking people up because otherwise you would just be living your own life. You know, we yeah. all are trying to get this message out to more people. So um, I think that that Vin and Dave are, are on the same team, like it or not. And I hope that they realize it one of these days.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about you. So I've heard you say you came from um, private... Um the private mortgage, what do you what do you call it? Private money mortgage. Um private money mortgage broker or lending. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I wanna I want to dig in a little bit to that. So I, I think this is an industry that like most people don't even know exists. So you are lending, you were, I know you're retired from this now for the most part, but you were um lending money, your own money or money you raised from investors to home buyers. Is that right?
1: Yeah, both, and, and it wasn't just home buyers. It could be commercial real estate, land developments, all sorts of things. But essentially, it's just a private bank. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have a borrower who comes to me who can't get a loan from the bank either because they need it really fast. Which obviously, underwriting with a conventional mortgage lender takes forty-five days usually now, sometimes sixty. I can lend in five. So mm-hmm. that's that's the niche that I'm in. And then on top of that, I am no, I am not taking. Fed funds I am not I am not a bank. I have either my personal capital or I take capital from quasi-retired type folks or even working class folks that just have some savings set aside uh, and then I package that together. I put the the loan opportunity out to my investors. they basically respond yay or nay in the in the vesting and the dollar amount and then I draw docs and that's it.
0: So how are you assessing? the credit worthiness of the people that are coming to you, um, for these loans? What's your, what's your process there?
1: It's very similar to a conventional lender. I do a full underwriting package where I'll run credit. I'll, I'll at least request some income information. I don't go as deep as verifying everything as a bank does, because ultimately my biggest concern as a hard money lender, the The basis of the term "hard" is about well. First, it's hard money, but like as in actual money. But it's also based off of the asset. So, yep. my primary concern is that the asset itself has enough security that I don't have to worry nearly as much about your income or about your credit. Uh, so that's that's the main difference. Is that I, I move faster. The interest rates are a little bit higher. the The loan is short term because you don't want someone holding on to a nine or ten percent interest rate loan for 30 what, years. What
0: kind of term are we talking? Like 10 years, five years? No, usually two or three. Two or three years. Okay. So, so the types of people who are coming to you are um, probably they've got, they've got capital or else what they're buying is going to be generating um, capital for them. And it's more a question of they need more liquidity faster. Um, it's not like average Joe middle-class person trying to buy a house. It's more like uh larger things or wealthier individuals.
1: Yeah. It's usually guys that have a decent sized portfolio that they don't want to deal with the underwriting or, or if you're self-employed, we deal with a lot of people like that, that can't get qualified just because they're self-employed. Maybe they're not proving their income. Maybe they're not reporting all of their income to the IRS, but they have 40% to put down on a purchase. Like who, who wouldn't want to lend you 60% on the purchase of real estate? I mean, it's, it's a pretty safe loan, regardless of your income or your credit history. So that's that's the niche that we're in. Basically, it wouldn't exist except for the fact that banks are idiots. You know that yeah. they're that their underwriting protocols are stupid. So oh, it, I, that's I went why we this, exist.
0: No, I went through this myself, and before I had heard about your show, it was like just not long before I was going through the process myself, and you know I own a business, and I this is my second company, and I it's, um, it's a venture backed company and it's in the phase where it is not profitable yet. Right. Which is what mm-hmm. you do with a venture backed company. You raise money because you believe you're going to build something that's, you know, and, and it could be not profitable in the startup world for like 10 plus years sometimes. Right. That's, that's normal in that world. If, mm-hmm. you know, you could have a great business that still isn't profitable because you're not focused on profitability anyway. So I've got this, this company and like, my own credit history is great. My, you know, the company's uh, got plenty of capital. um, And from like top tier investors, right? My income's fine, all this stuff. I can't get a bank to touch me. Mm -hmm. It's like their criteria is just all robotic, right? It's just automatic. I own too much. And what's odd is if I owned like 10% less of my company, then I'd be fine. (laughs) <laughs> because they wouldn't consider me an owner at that point. So like, so so if I was less, if my net worth was lower, right? If I had less ownership of my company, but everything else was the same, I could easily get approved in a minute. But because yeah. I own more, it falls into this different. So I just, I remember going through that. And I did eventually find somebody who was kind of like a more local person, but I was like, there's gotta be a private market that services people like me, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean- there is, unfortunately, uh, and I mean, this is a, a secondary part of the reason that I'm getting out of the business, other than the lockdowns, which I think have destroyed the economy and created the greatest bubble in real estate in history. Um, but the, the other reason that I wanted out is because the regulatory environment is awful. Under Dodd-Frank, they, they laid out all of these new laws that basically criminalize much of what I was doing historically. So like, they made it so that I can't lend on owner-occupied property. Which is the most secure collateral you can do is basically to have someone buy the home to live in. Those are the people that are least likely to default. They made it illegal for me to lend on that. Under, what? Yeah, I'm dead serious. Under so,
0: what? Under what? Like made up pretext?
1: Consumer protection.
0: Who's being protected? The borrower. From from what? From Access buying the to house. Capital. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they uh, basically you know because of the crazy liar loans that they had and it's 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 always the case so basically the the entire system was made sick because they had these things called ninja loans which was no income no job no assets or whatever it was and basically everyone and their mother, if you had a pulse, you can get as much of a loan as you wanted in 2005 to 2007. I remember those
0: days, man. I remember yeah, I flipped a house wild. back then. I was like, I flipped a house when I was like 16 and my wife and I bought a house and uh, rented it out because we were about to sell it and the entire market <laughs> collapsed and then we couldn't sell it. So we had to become oh. landlords and rent it to a magician and the rent checks <laughs> disappeared. So. <laughs>
1: You learned the hard way uh, yeah. so, so because of that Which was not happening largely from private lenders It was, it was happening from Fannie Mae Freddie Mac backed government lenders uh, But what they did as a result Because the big boys, the banks Had their lobbyists in there writing the laws They ended up writing the laws To protect the consumers From all of these criminal you know, Predatory loans But it only really criminalized people like me who yeah. were honest, upstanding, hard money lenders. They they really made it much, much harder and they monopolized the consumer lending market so that now if you are purchasing a home for consumer purpose, which is you're going to live in it, you can only go to a bank. How great is that? So people, uh, I mean, people are just naive. They give the power to the government to try and fix a problem and it always makes it worse. Same well, what's always, insane always.
0: about all this, you know, being steeped in Austrian business cycle theory and stuff you and I know, like, causally, um, what's, you know, structurally, and we, though we can't predict uh, with certitude dates and times and quantities and where things will manifest, but we know things are screwed up, right? We know malinvestments everywhere, and we know yes. what that means. And the problem is people will look and say, well, it's the animal spirits. It's the greed of speculators and investors. And, and when everything collapses, people will blame. They'll be like, look, look for evidence at people buying Dogecoin, which was literally made to be a joke and it purposefully sucks as a technology and they're (laughs) buying it and it's going insane. This is because people are stupid and greedy. And the reality is the opposite. Like what you just described to me, if you want to be in the game of helping people buy houses, policy, not, not just monetary policy, artificially low interest rates, but that's a huge part of it. Even like fiscal and regulatory policy makes it so that the option of being a responsible investor is not on the table. It's either illegal or you'll go out of business because your competitors are chasing much higher gains fueled by a bunch of artificial crap. And so everyone is incentivized to behave like an absolute insane speculator. And so they do. And then people blame the market. It's like you, you, People aren't naturally that risky with their money. They're only no. that risky if you're if you're forcing them to be through all these policies and, and money printing.
1: Exactly. And that's that's why to me, the the number one platform for the LP ought to be, other than ending the wars, I think even, even possibly above that, ought to be ending the Federal Reserve because it is so detrimental to a functioning capitalist system. And if that's if that's what we believe in, which I certainly do, you can't you cannot have a central bank because all it does is it creates a litany of evidence that capitalism is failing to people that don't understand what's happening. And and that's why I try to go out of my way to really explain why it's so detrimental, why it creates all this malinvestment, why we are in this consistent constant boom-bust cycle. If people don't understand that, Then, yeah, of course, if you're just an idiot sitting on your couch and you're like, oh, here goes the stock market again, crashing again, all these greedy dudes on Wall Street. Oh, here goes real estate. I can't, you know, now I'm going to have to sell my second home because blah, 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 blah. People don't understand it. And it's just tragic because it's so it's so simple and obvious once you get it. But most people don't. So they just think that it's greed and and, uh, you know, bad decision making that that ends up in these situations. And it just couldn't be further from the truth.
0: Or, or, you know, you can criticize some of these things happening in the economy and and criticize government and people will come back and they'll be like, hey, it's look, it's all these big banks. um, And even the Fed itself is technically not part of the government. It's it's private banking interests that are the problem. So we need government to rein them in. (laughs) Even if you accept that premise, they don't think through what does that mean? We need government to rein them in. It means those very banks are going to pass laws just like they did to you that ban their competition and give them more. Like if you use the tool of violence, right? Like having this tool that can be wielded, a monopoly on the use of force, uh, makes people who are behaving badly behave worse, right? Mm-hmm. It empowers it. If you don't like those banks, what you should want is for them to have to compete way more than they currently do, not for exactly. them to get regulated, right? <laughs> because if they're the powerful ones, they'll write the regulations.
1: Exactly. Um, and and what I what I always try and point out too is that there is no more important signal for the market than the price of money. And you, mm. you currently have the Federal Reserve setting the rate at which money is borrowed basically across the globe. I mean, that's unbelievable power. So if you are opposed to monopolies, this should be the number one issue you have, is that you cannot have someone with a monopoly on setting the price of money. Because if you do, this is what
0: you get. Man, that's such a great point. That's such a great point to go in with the with the you know monopoly angle. Like, who has more power? You know, the one entity that get, that gets to decide the price of money for the entire world, or you know, one company that's competing with a bunch of others to sell you some you know some service or some good. So right. so um, before we move on to, I, I do want to get into sort of your thoughts on the economy at large and and sort of what's happening and where you might see things going. But I want I want to Finish on sort of the business model of this private money mortgaging, because I think it's so cool and I'm I'm fascinated by all businesses and all entrepreneurs and I think they're of all course. so much more interesting than people realize. Um, so you so I got the part about who's coming, who wants these mortgages and why, and you know how you're sort of assessing their risk. Um, when it comes to if you're if you are seeking uh, if you are using like doing the loans with outside investors. What is your process? of? So are you going and raising money perpetually? Or are you going every time you get a, a loan application, you go out and say, hey, who wants to get in on this and on what terms and kind of doing it that, at that way?
1: Yeah. Basically, I get a lead from a broker who says, hey, I've got this borrower. Here's the general idea of what he's looking for. He sends it to me. I ask for XYZ additional information. I put together the package. I then issue a loan proposal and I say, I can do this loan because I know my investors. I know what they'll lend out. Or I know myself. And if my investors won't do it, I'll, I'll do the loan personally. So I send out a loan proposal. They either accept or decline. If they accept, they send back a signed loan proposal. I then put this in a package. I email it out to all of my investors, which is only like a hundred people. And I just say, first come, first serve. Here's the terms. Here's the details. Here's some photos. Here's a broker price opinion or appraisal. um, And this is when I'm going to need your funds. Respond back with your vesting and your investment amount. And as I mean, I'm telling you in 30 minutes, I could fund a million dollar deal like just from email. So that's awesome. it, It was not it was not an issue. And and it's because I I don't do a ton of volume because I'm a one man show. So like I'm not I'm not tr- And I wasn't trying to get big because the bigger you get as a hard money lender, you're toast. Like the regulators will crush you. So yep. I would only do a couple loans a week maybe. And, but because the fees are higher, I was still making a great living. So I was very happy with that. Um, but obviously with the the lockdowns and the uh, inflated real estate market, I was like, okay, it's time to withdraw.
0: Well, um, okay. So I I, I want to talk about withdrawing from it, but what what percentage of the time, and I don't know how many years you did this, um, but what percentage of the time did you um, have to repossess the property? Like, was that frequent? Are these like really high oh, no. risk or not? Really? No,
1: okay. no, it's, I mean, I, I was fortunate because I, I started my company in 2013, so I had already missed the big implosion. So I kind of started fresh, but when I was working for my dad's company, he had a hundred foreclosures that I had to liquidate. So Ooh. Yeah, that was my job was to liquidate all these foreclosures, and it was. And a he
0: survived through the through the 2008 collapse.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, his investors obviously had some bloody noses. Like there was certain loans that you'd only get maybe eighty percent of your capital back, and things like that. Um, some really bad ones, but very very few and far between, I'd say. Even for him, probably eighty plus percent of his portfolio got through unscathed.
0: I mean, the fact that the loans are so short term just has to be like a saving grace in a situation like that. Right.
1: That helps. Um, but also because you're making nine or 10% interest, if the loan performs for say three years and you end up then taking a 30% loss, you may, you end up getting all of your money back, but you made nothing. So it's like, that still sucks. But it's better than the stock market, whereas if you lose 50% or 70% of market value and you sell at the bottom because you need liquidity, that's a much worse situation. So for his, for his company, I'll just speak for mine. I started in 2013, so I didn't have any economic recession until the lockdowns that, that was even a potential to you know, implode my portfolio. But I'd say I had two foreclosures out of a couple hundred loans over that's my incredible. career. Yeah, so I had way less than 1%. Um. Yeah, but I I, I was very conservative because I my job was to liquidate all the all the bad investments that he had done right. in 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 the last bull market. So when I started my own company, I was like, oh, this reminds me of that. Like not doing that. So I, it's you know.
0: almost like you operated as a rational. Uh, business you know
1: <laughs> what a concept yeah and which is why i need to be put in prison you know which is why i should be made illegal because we
0: can't, we can't have this guy out here giving these kind of loans that actually no. make sense um so tell me about making the call to get out of this business because it because you know from where i'm sitting it's like what's the matter with this guy he's running this thing he can dial it up and dial it down however much he wants keep do do one every week do one every month if he wants to right. make good money What made you say, "I want to be done"? You know, like that's a pretty big—that's a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah, no, it is. I—I mean, in fairness, I am not opposed to restarting my company in a state that doesn't treat me like a criminal. Um, (laughs) So you're in California. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So, like, if I move to Texas or some other state that has kinder entrepreneurial laws, I'll, I'll consider. Reopening and doing probably not having outside investor capital but just in investing my my family's capital so i could I could see myself doing that uh, but as far as why I shut it down is simply because there was too much my my job was as a fiduciary to look after my investors' capital above my own personal interests I, and I took that very seriously so when when I start to evaluate investments in an environment where you have tons of uncertainty. You have all of these people that are unemployed. You have unknowable amounts of foreclosures that are pending because you have all of these people who have moratoriums on both foreclosures and evictions. There's just too much to to calculate. I can't know when the bottom falls out. So obviously, I still have a portfolio of loans that are performing in this environment. I hope that they get liquidated before the bottom falls out. But all i can do is stop lending more money into a sick economic model and and that's what i'm trying to do
0: man that's a hard that's a hard thing to do because when the market's in this euphoric phase where everybody's just drunk i mean i mean everything the price of everything stock market crypto real estate doesn't matter collectibles trading like just everything <laughs> lumber right it's out of control yeah. and it's so hard even if you know that this can't last to stop because it then is. you think about the opportunity cost well if i just if i was still playing in that market you know i stop maybe maybe I'll, I'll be out in time you know i won't be the last man standing but it's like from if it's if it's your own money that's one thing but as you said if you're dealing with investors money and stuff man that's just a that's a game that I, i'm with you like I don't want to play that. You know, I don't want my fate to be in the hands of something that I know to be untrustworthy.
1: Right. Exactly. And it's not, and it's not just that they're investors. I know these people, I care about these people. You know, these are, these are not nameless, faceless fed fund windows. These are people that, you know, worked hard and saved and invested. And, you know, many of them live off of this income for their retirement. So I really deeply care about these people. So the last thing I want to do is jeopardize a lifetime of work with some intermittent or uh, temporary greed, something that benefits me. It just doesn't make any sense. And, and you got to keep in mind too, these people, because they rely on this interest income, they are beating down my door every day, asking to lend that money. So it takes double resolve to tell them, no, I can't, I can't in good conscience redeploy your capital into this economy. I think it's too dangerous. Some of them take it to heart. Some of them go to other brokers. Some of them continue to push this money into a sick system. And all I can do is say, Hey, at least I could sleep at night, man. Like uh, at least I did the right thing. And if they go out and they end up blowing their money, at least it wasn't me.
0: Where, where do you put money these days though? Like, what do you tell these people, right? If you have any kind of money that you're sitting on, you know even if it's just a 10 20 50,000 couple hundred thousand a million right depending on your age like you know if you have savings if you have like where do you put it i don't trust the stock market i don't trust like what do you what do you how are you thinking about this these days and like if you keep it in us dollars it's like well that's you know that's purchasing power of that's getting eaten away what what are your thoughts
1: so i have a very unpopular libertarian opinion but i think that right, an unpopular opinion for libertarians is what I mean to say, is that I think that it's important to have exposure to cash because I think that you're going to see a deflationary collapse. In a deflationary collapse, even with a depreciating dollar, because the deflation is so much more rapid than the dollar's debasement, it should be an opportunity of a lifetime to buy depreciated assets after the collapse. So I like, obviously in this environment, because I can't know if we are going... Deflationary soon Or if we're going to have As the Bank of America reported yesterday Intermittent hyperinflationary period Which is a horrifying term Uh, So I don't know If it's going to be hyperinflationary I don't know if we're Zimbabwe I don't know if we're Weimar I don't know if we're Venezuela I don't know if we're just absolutely annihilating the dollar Or as uh, Janet Yellen and Joe Biden Came out this morning and said We are open to raising interest rates To alleviate some of the i don't know tailwinds or whatever they say about the economy. <laughs> and and i just want people to be aware that as someone who really deeply understands how much the interest rates are are making all of this go right now. If they do that, if they raise interest rates, you will see a deflationary collapse. Like i have no doubt in my mind there is too much debt in this system. It is all predicated on hyper hyper low record low borrowing rates that we've never seen before. If that changes, If all of a sudden a mortgage for a house, which you could get as of six months ago for 2.75% on 30 years, which is nuts. If it goes to 5.5%, the starter homes in San Diego that you're buying for 800 grand are once again worth a half a million dollars. Overnight. That's how it works. So I would much rather buy in that environment after the collapse and then allow the Fed to pump my assets again, which is what they do. So if... It's either we're going to get one, I, this, this is my thesis, is that we're either going to have one more collapse before the ultimate end of fiat currency, or this is the end of fiat currency. You have to hedge both ways. So you have to have cash to buy deflationary collapse, but you also have to have hard assets, either real estate, maybe uh, cryptocurrency I'm a fan of. So I think having exposure to that makes sense. Precious metals, which is very, very low. And I don't understand that given no, how I high to ask crypto you about is.
0: That. Yeah. That's pretty weird, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad though that, cause I don't, you know, I've never, I've never gone heavy into investment and financial stuff. Um, you know, I, I understand economics in the very theoretical sense, and then I'm very much focused on entrepreneurship. And so I've put all of my resources primarily into building my business, but I've become more and more attuned, especially the older I've got into this stuff. And it's just sure. funny, my gut instinct and I feel like I'm crazy. Everybody else I talk to that sort of shares my worldview is I want to have some cash because liquidity with so much uncertainty, I want to be able to act fast. And so if you've got stuff in, you know, precious metals, that's that's kind of a cumbersome process of turning those into a different asset, right? So like you said, if the bottom falls out of the real estate market and I see an opportunity or whatever it might be, being able to, to deploy resources quickly matters. And, and even... Like crypto, especially if you're talking Bitcoin, like if all of a sudden everybody starts trying to move it, I mean, you can be screwed. You're, I've had this happen before after the 2017 thing. Like that, you can have unconfirmed transactions that last days, and you don't know how long it is. And so I want instant access. And the other thing is with all this capital gains tax stuff, got a bunch of money on Robinhood or whatever, and all of a sudden you see an opportunity to buy a house because the market collapses, and you're going to get taxed to, you know. So like, I just I felt this sense that like. As much as i hate cash i feel like i want to have cash ready and it's just interesting to hear you hear you say that yeah
1: <clears throat> i mean real life-changing money is made in with counter cyclical investing so if you can go against the trend and get out of a market early and be sitting on cash when when there's blood in the streets and everyone's flipping out and they'll sell whatever they can like imagine had you sold everything you owned in 2007 and then you waited till 2009, you'd, you'd be Warren Buffett today. You know, yeah. like that's, that's how it works. So I am trying to go against the trend when I, when I talk to people and I see every everyone in unison is so confident that this is the end of fiat, that, that the dollar is dying, that you, you're crazy not to be fully invested in the stock market or real estate or precious metals or crypto. I'm sorry. I, I, Whenever I see everyone saying the same thing, I go, they're wrong. <laughs> yep. yep. So that's how I'm Dude, with that.
0: It. I'm, I, that's, I'm so with you. I'm like, this just doesn't feel, if everyone calls it a sure thing, <laughs> I've seen this movie before. So t- tell me your thoughts on what is going on with gold and silver. They're like the only, they're like the only, the thing only that asset that's not up. Yeah. Right. Like poor Peter <laughs> Schiff, you know? <laughs>
1: I think my, my belief is that the, the belief in maintaining value through hard assets has been completely taken over by crypto. I, I really think that. I think that anybody who was a gold bug, who's, like, who's actually looking at... And I, and I don't blame them because if you, look at, if you look at the performance of gold and silver, and then you look at the performance of Bitcoin over the past 12 months, you go, well, I'd have to be fucking crazy not to have bought Bitcoin like gold's up 20% or something. Bitcoin's up 400%, 500%, whatever it is. So uh, I think that that's, that's really all there is to it is that people are, are, if you're trying to preserve the, the purchasing value of your, your savings right now, everyone thinks that the play is, is a cryptocurrency bet. So.
0: Man, it makes me, it makes me so bullish on gold and silver because I'm like, <laughs> me too, you know, cause like I, I, completely believe that the upside for a lot of these cryptos bitcoin especially it would not be at all shocked if it continues to skyrocket and goes me crazy too. but i also believe that there is a even if i believe there's a 60% chance of bitcoin going to 500,000 a coin or whatever i also believe there's like a 30% chance that it crashes to the basement right whereas like me too gold the upside is a lot smaller but so is the downside like just look mm-hmm. at that shit historically and so i'm kind of like everybody's poo-pooing this thing it feels like hmm feels like a this buy is interesting. i've never really been interested in precious metals before again i've always just gone all in on my businesses but i'm kind of like this is interesting you know i kind of i kind of like this um i
1: i think it's i think it's worth having exposure to And as i said i can't because there's so many variables no one knows anyone tells you that they knows definitively they're lying uh, they just don't know so my, my advice to people, even though none of this is financial advice, this is all what I'm doing personally, is to have exposure to a bunch of different things, you know? And, and I think that if you don't have some precious metals, it's probably a mistake, particularly if you're really concerned about Weimar Germany. Like if you actually think dollar is dead, why the hell wouldn't you want to have some precious metals in your, in your safe? You know, like you should have some exposure, even if you're a huge Bitcoin believer, because ultimately, if there is a deflationary collapse... Where there is a a desperate need for liquidity, everything we saw this in March of 2020. I don't know why I have to remind people because Bitcoin, the fundamentals of Bitcoin didn't change over the past year. You know, the price of Bitcoin went to six or five thousand dollars in March of 2020, just on the announcement of the lockdowns. That was because not because Bitcoin was uh, uh, you know trash all of a sudden. It was because people were seeking liquidity because the stock market took a shit because we were locking down the economy and everyone was responding l- rationally in that they were like, "Oh my God, the world's ending! I'm going to sell all of my assets." No one had liquidity, so that's that's what happens. And if you think that that the same thing won't happen again if we have a deflationary collapse, you're crazy. Like I really believe that you will see much lower entry points in. in basically every cryptocurrency across the board. And I would like to have some liquidity to be a a buyer in that
0: environment. Yes. Yep. Yep. I'm with you. Um, Talk to me a little bit more about this. You mentioned the, with the real estate market in particular, that there have been some of these laws passed since the lockdowns that prevent evictions basically um, or foreclosures rather. Um, Both. Where are we with that? Like, are we, Is there like a wave of foreclosures on the way that's being forestalled by policy? And how long can the bank survive that? What what do you see happening there?
1: Yeah, there's, I think I've read that, I've read different things. It's really weird. I can't get a, a real clear read on this, but I've read that there's either 10 million or 4 million houses that are in forbearance. So basically the borrower is not paying, but the bank is not foreclosing. And they did that because, the government made it illegal to foreclose or evict in this period. And that, that moratorium has been extended through June of 2021 and it'll, it'll have an automatic extension for six months. So if you go to your bank in June of 2021 and you say, Hey, I can't afford my mortgage because of COVID or whatever, and say, I'm not going to be able to make a payment. They will give you an automatic six month extension from there. So basically anybody that wants it doesn't have to pay their mortgage until 2022. So, the way I see that is, you're going to have a lot of people essentially not paying Shit, their mortgage. Why
0: am I paying my mortgage?
1: Right. Well, and and a lot of people already did that. I did that. I did it on my pri- you know my primary residence because I was like, well, if I don't have to, I'm not gonna. <laughs> so uh, I ended up selling my house. So I ended up having to you know make those back payments. But what I envision is a bunch of people not paying their mortgages. You get to the end of this year, and everyone's going to say to themselves, "Wow, the market's up." A lot, I'm gonna sell because I can't I still say COVID, you know, screwed up my job. I lost my job. There's tons of people that have still lost their jobs. There's tons of people that took pay cuts that they say to themselves, I can't, I don't really want to afford this house anymore. And I have three hundred thousand dollars in equity and I only bought it three years ago. I'm gonna sell this place. And I think you're gonna have a ton of people making that same decision, all, all at the same time, which will add all of this inventory to a market that has far too little. We only have a million houses for sale across the country. That is wow. nuts. That is absolutely insane. No one is selling right now, and can you blame them? They don't have to make, they don't have to pay their mortgage. Why would they sell their house? So they're just sitting in it. Um, and you have, you know, untold inventory that that is kind of held back by foreclosures and eviction moratoriums. Then you have all of this other inventory that's held back by people that are just uncertain about what the hell's going on. Yeah. So they're like, I don't know what to do. Um, but you need to have probably four or 5 million more houses hit the market in order to balance inventory. The reason that the the prices are going up 15, 20% annually is because there's so little inventory that you have these, these, uh, you know, feeding frenzies where you get 10 or 15 offers in the first day that a house hits the market. And this is
0: just, just I just went through through this personally. It's insane. I mean, we made, we made full price offers on like a dozen places every time we would make an offer within hours of the listing going up like not not on zillow like pre zillow right full price offers beat out every time by cash buyers paying above list price i mean like insanity so <laughs> so so what's going on with construction of homes i mean i just saw this thing about the price of lumber is going crazy i'm sure that plays a part are are there less builders because they don't feel like they can bank on the, that's a little bit more of a long term play or what's going on with new home construction?
1: Well, uh, I can only speak to California because that's the only place I've ever developed anything, but I would imagine it's a similar story across the country. The regulatory environment for builders sucks. It costs so much money. It takes so much time. The the city uh, approval process is outrageous. There's so much cost that's added to it. Then you had the supply chain breakdown that happened from the lockdowns. Which made all of the materials skyrocket. I mean, you're talking major increases, like probably 40 or 50% to the bottom line of a total construction of a home. And I'm building six right now. So I know this firsthand. Cool. Um, so, yeah. So all of this adds up to it, t- it takes, it's very in, uh, capital intensive and time intensive. And when the lockdowns first happened, People like me who were actively developing real estate were like, holy shit, I've made a huge mistake. Like, I am not going to be able to sell these things before everything implodes. Little did I know that they were going to pump the system full of $7 trillion in fiat, increase the you know, M2 by, by 24% annually. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that that was going to happen. So I was bailed out by that decision because I now have these six houses that are about to hit the market in 90 days and they'll all be sold within... You know, 24 hours of me putting them on the market, probably at record prices, I, I would imagine. So uh, I think that you are you are uh, undoubtedly there are a lot of very aggressive builders that are probably going as fast as they can to build as much more inventory as they can. So I think you'll see a lot of inventory hit, but but people don't understand how how slow this process is. Like to to buy a huge parcel and to subdivide it to build out like a hundred track homes and then to get all of the materials and the builders and the contractors lined up and to get it all done. You're talking a year and a half at, at a bare minimum for most of these projects. So I think that that's the the real issue is that, you know, no one suspected that there would be so much demand and it's just going to take a while for that inventory to wrap up.
0: So, so you said that, you know, there's hardly any house on the market. People are not paying their mortgage. And then they're going to get to this point where they have to start paying and they're going to start to sell. So you see, do you see that tanking the the, the market, the, the prices of housing, or you think there's no. still just too little inventory for that to to be okay? I think there's too little inventory.
1: So my my real doomsday scenario is not that, and people have misunderstood me because I went on uh, Piquinona's show and I talked about it, and I should have been more explicit. I don't th- because there's so little inventory. I think that that inventory will actually just balance the market and cool it off, but. The real issue is that you're seeing hyperinflationary forces and the federal reserve is going to have to increase interest rates. That, that is where the real bottom falls out. So that's, that's my real doomsday scenario is that they increase interest rates and all of this inventory from all these developers hits and all of this inventory from uh, all the people that have foreclosure and eviction moratoriums hits. All of this happens in a perfect storm in like 24 months. And then it's like,
0: how do you personally, so this is something that I've, I've, I struggle with myself and I've talked with a lot of other friends, especially those with families like myself, how to balance attempting to maximize, um, you know, uh, wealth, freedom, uh, survivability, whatever, through what I believe is coming while at the same time attempting to not give up my, you know, lower my current quality of life too much. Mm-hmm. And, in this and I, I want to get your take as a, as a guy who doesn't have, um, you don't have a family, correct? You don't have a, a children or anything. Because I, I'm really curious how the calculus works. So like for me, we saw how insane the market was getting and a house that we'd only been in for three years. And we were like, oh my, this is insane what we can get <laughs> to this thing. right Maybe we should try. We, we weren't planning on moving for several years, but we, we had kind of eventually wanted to move out and have some land and do kind of a farmstead thing. But this was like down the road. Everything happens with COVID. And the idea of being away and kind of having a little bit more land and independence and things like that was more appealing than ever. And then the market for houses, we were like, this is crazy. We can get so much money for this house. It doesn't make any sense. I think maybe we should do this. But I really wanted to sell that house and then rent until the housing market collapsed. Because I'm like, yeah, but when we go to buy, we're going to face the same irrational market. And we did but we've been renters before uh, for many years and and rented homes. And I've always liked it. I like not having the maintenance and whatever, but the the downside is every couple of years when your lease is up, your landlord could do anything they want to. Right. And if you got a family and they're all in love with the house and the neighborhood or whatever, now that's a lot, that's a lot to put on kids that, that need to, Oh, everybody move. we got to find a new house quick, um, which has happened to us before. And so I'm like, Want to rent, but I don't know how long this could take. Like Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe hyperinflation happens and the real estate market prices never collapse, or maybe the collapse takes five years and we got to rent and the rental market keeps skyrocketing and we get priced out of houses. We gotta and like if I was single, I totally would have sat on that cash and I would have waited. I got a family (laughs) and I want to get them settled in a place that's and so like, it's really hard. And even just where we live, we looked long and hard about living internationally. You know, I hear all Vin stuff about Saipan. We looked at some other countries. We looked at every state in the union we looked at. And like, if it was just me and my wife, we'd be, we'd be in Saipan or the Caribbean or something right now. Right. We'd be somewhere a little crazier, right. um, but it's not, we've got kids and we've got extended family rent. And so like, we got to balance a lot of these things, or we'd be out in like, you know, whatever, Alaska or somewhere super, super isolated. But So like, I'm curious from your perspective, now that you're in the position where you, I know you are trying to get out of California and you know what you know about what's coming economically. So in terms of where you're living, where you're putting your resources, how, how are you making these decisions? How do you make this calculus? Like, you know, are are you, are you like, screw it all, man, I'm going to sell it. I'm going to go live in some cabin and have maximum freedom and wait till it collapses and then reemerge and buy up the world. Or are you like, no, I still want to like, you know, be a part of society. (laughs) You know what I mean?
1: It's, it's a very tough balance. It really is. Um, I think the reason I've got to be so financially free is because I, because I've been single. I mean, I've had, you know, serious girlfriends for extended periods of time, but I've never been married and had kids or anything. Uh, I've been able to make these really—I don't know—just borderline, like self-flagellating decisions. Where, like, every house I've ever owned, I have subdivided it and rented out half of it. You know, like something that a fa- like a family man, probably wouldn't do. I, I made forty thousand dollars a year off of my Airbnb from the downstairs of my my pri- primary residence where I sit today, and it paid my mortgage. So for the past six seven years now that i've lived here i've lived here for free so like these are all decisions that you know would my would my quality of life been better not to have to have walked around on eggshells when i have guests below and not to you know blare music of course i would have had a lot more fun but sometimes you just make these decisions to to better yourself in the long haul and i think that that's the same thing i'm doing with you know selling everything now and moving out of california To answer your question more directly, I think that I'll probably end up buying a primary residence in whatever state I decide is going to be my my long-term haul, even if I have to pay into the stupid uh, bubble. Because I think that whatever state I buy into is going to be a net immigration inflow state. So I don't think that they'll be as damaged as, say, California. I think California is going to be demolished when when this actual implosion comes because they are losing tons of population but more importantly they're losing the people that produce jobs Mm. (laughs) so i think that that states like that are in trouble i think states like florida and texas which are having this incredible infusion of really intelligent young people that are going to be bringing businesses and capital it's like i'm not nearly as worried about those markets collapsing so um i think that it goes back to the concept of all real estate is local. And, and in this situation, even if you see an increase in interest rates, I think you will still probably see a a price decrease in those states, but it won't be so catastrophic that it doesn't make sense for me to buy in that area.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We, when we are looking, we're, we're talking, I talked to realtors in several different cities. So in Charleston, South Carolina, where we were living in Chattanooga and Nashville, Tennessee, and, um, even places you wouldn't think, Columbia, South Carolina, which is not like a great place to live that people are excited about or whatever. And these guys were like, they're like, I have no inventory, I can't keep, they said in in, in this part of the country, at least, in Tennessee, a little bit of California as well. But they said, there's all these guys from New York and they're literally just buying anything that has acreage or land, they're buying it sight unseen and just, they're not even moving here. They're just like, this is my doomsday escape. I need I need to put cash somewhere and have a piece of property that I can get the hell out of the city. Uh, exactly so it's right. crazy. Like farms are getting bought up, just like crazy stuff. Uh, and I think, I think there are some places where if the real doomsday scenario happens, there are certain types of real estate that um, may be even more in demand, you know?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And and I, I'm open to, you know, buying a condo and and, you know, buying something way less than what I need just to kind of ride out. And, and get to you know, like actually see what transpires and then make better decisions from there. Like I could get a condo in Miami for 300, 400 grand. So it's like, that's nothing to me. So I can do that and then just wait for the shit hit to hit the fan. And then I could go, okay, now I'm going to buy my dream home, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, so if you have that kind of flexibility, I think it makes sense. And even if you're, even if you have a family, like, I think it's, it's prudent for the, for the sake of your family to, to really consider, like, do I if I own a house that has a half a million dollars in equity in a blue state, should I be getting out of here? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like it's worth consideration.
0: What What are your thoughts on? Because because this is something I never I never really thought much about. I I always thought that um, Thomas Jefferson, as much as he, he's got a, a lot of great ideas, was like totally wrong, miscalculated about. Oh well, if the U.S. is to survive, it needs a largely agricultural, farming type of you know society. Um, there's something about his ideas there that are now starting to seem maybe a little bit like foresight, uh, foresight, <laughs> far sighted, or something. Um, because I've noticed the best correlation I can come up with between absolute technocracy, uh, people willing to put up with technocracy, that the biggest correlation is population density. It's like the lower the population density, almost no matter where you are in the country or even in the world, the lower the population density, the lower the tolerance for this stuff. And it's made me like, and I'm like a big cosmopolitan. I love global free trade. I love culture. I love, you know, cities and stuff. I going mean, I didn't grow up in a big city, but like, I don't want to raise my kids in a really big city, but I love them. I love visiting. I like all that stuff. I'm like, shit, man. Like I'm rereading James Scott's, you know, seeing like a state and all this stuff, like head to the Hills. Cause if you want to maintain your freedom, there's a part of me. That's just, I'm wary of any large population center right now when I've seen some of the crazy shit going down. So I'm curious from your standpoint. And again, I'd be much riskier as a single person in either direction. I might go live out yeah. in the middle of freaking Alaska and middle of nowhere, or I might be much more comfortable going to a big city and like, Oh, if I need to get out, I can get out. But having kids, it's a little different, but like, how are you thinking about that? Are you, are, do you, are do you have an impulse to like flee large uh, population centers or no?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, just, I think if you witnessed 2020 and you didn't come away going like, Ooh, I don't know about cities, man. This looks a little sketch. I think, <laughs> I don't know what you were looking at. Uh, yeah, I am a hundred percent. I mean, if I had, if I had kids, I would almost certainly be buying a, like if I had a wife and, and a family, I would almost certainly be buying like a farm type property and and you know, buying an armory's worth of, of arms and like teaching the kids how to how to hunt and, and farm and all that. Like, I really think that this is a potential within not just our lives, but in the short term that we see a real societal collapse, particularly when it comes to high population density centers. Isn't it, it weird cities. to say that?
0: Like it's so yes, weird to say that. I've always crazy. been an optimist and I still consider myself one. It just it feels weird to even to even have to think about that. But I feel like I, I have to, to be responsible.
1: I completely agree with you, man. Believe me, like people will hear me talk about this and they'll probably think that I'm some like super pessimistic doomsday guy who never thought that anything good would ever happen in America. Completely contrary to who I am as a person. I thought that technolo- technological innovation and the unbelievable spirit of America and the entrepreneurs that exist here, like we could we could overcome anything. I'm sorry, there are people that are working to try and do this Great reset thing and and they're not Hiding it they're very overt about it this is Not some conspiracy theory they believe In it so I'm taking them Seriously and if you saw what happened In 2020 that was a product of Their brain child You know that's this is what they believe in is that You can sacrifice Freedom and liberty For their power I mean that's That's what they believe so I think that they're Going to continue down this path and it's either Going to it's going to come to a head where you know, the people that still believe in liberty and freedom go right up against these people that don't. And we're going to see who wins. I, I personally, as a peaceful person who is not a military vet or anything like that, I'm not really interested in being on the front line. So yeah, rural living sounds awesome to me.
0: <laughs> it's funny how, um, you know, on the one hand being, you know, cause I got married so young and have kids and stuff. And it's easy to be like, man, there's so many ways in which having a family to think about, whatever, it restricts a lot of stuff. But there's other ways that um, that I have a lot of, uh, you know, like th- things that are nice and easy for me but that I don't often think about with with single people. So for example, the fact that I already have a family, it's very easy for me to make the decision of like, okay, now I got to prioritize, making sure my family's safe right. or whatever. Whereas for you, like, I always wonder this with single people in, in recent years and especially since 2020, I'm guessing you want a family someday. I hope that's not mm-hmm. too personal to ask. Um, yeah. and so it's like, well, you kind of you can't retreat away from civilization too much if you're still trying to start a family. Yeah. But unless I'm gonna die. Where do you go <laughs> to find like good people that you might want to date and marry and whatever? Like, I feel like that's harder than ever. And just like it, nobody's getting together, more and more crazy people around, you, you know, like just this. Yep. That's a, that's a big challenge. It's like needing in the midst of a, of a hyperinflationary, crazy speculative <laughs> statist falling apart world. You're right. out there on the market for a spouse. <laughs> how does that, how does no, that work out?
1: I, it doesn't work. I, I completely agree <laughs> with you. I, I, I think, I think that that's why I've been using my, my platform and my Twitter to like meet so many unbelievable women that see the world similar to, Similarly so this is all just
0: an advertisement for uh, for yeah. you to get dates. Yeah. Liberty Lockdown like is it. just
1: a, is just a dating show. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously. Cause like my, my worldview is so unusual, you yep. know, very few people see what I see. They don't understand what I, what I'm talking about. I need someone that gets it to some extent um, yep. because I, I have to make decisions for our family that I need my partner to be on board with. And if they're, if they're like, we're going we're gonna to live in downtown New York City. It's, I'd be like, you're fucking, no, we're not. <laughs> like, that's absolutely not going to happen. So I need someone who sees the world similarly. And I think that that's the cool thing. And I never considered Twitter a dating platform, but I've discovered that that's a really good way to like match up with someone ideologically first so that you could be like, okay, well, at least we have that. Now we can see if there's attraction and chemistry and everything else. Uh, but yeah, Tinder and stuff, like I'm not dealing with this duopoly mindset where, you know, if you voted for Trump, swipe left. If you voted for Biden, swipe left. It's like, look, I don't even want to fucking deal with either of you, you people. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> if so. you voted, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, <you're> right, right. <laughs> it it is so crazy. I, I remember I, I've you know worked with a lot of um, a lot of younger people who are single over the years, and even before all the twenty twenty stuff. I would always ask them because I'm like so old, and I, I mean I've been married for uh, eighteen years, so I'm like so. Uh, and before that, I grew up like. Homeschool conservative. I only dated one person before uh, my wife, and so like I don't know are any of this. You, are you thirty anyway. six? How old are you? I'm I'm thirty. I'll be thirty eight this year. Damn! All right, you're my age. You look yeah. better than
1: me. That that pisses me off, man. Good
0: job. Um, but it's like I always ask them, like, like, well, how do you? Especially because you know nobody goes to church anymore. People don't go to like. I don't know, like social, like, where do you go to physically meet people? Because the odd, especially people who like would work for me are all very passionate about their beliefs and things. The odds that your neighbor is just going to happen to be interested in, you know, anarcho capitalism or whatever, (laughs) or the people that you work with, they're so low. And it's like, what do you just like go to bars and hope for the best do you get out and i've just i've always been curious because we're in this weird time where like technology has enabled so much more for communication but there's still some part of me that's like but it's not the same as being in person you know what i mean and then there's that like with this lockdown stuff too it's like i love technology but i'm also like as soon as you start telling me i'm only a this zoom call is awesome you and i live you know a thousand miles apart we can do this As soon as I start being told, this is the only way you're allowed to do it, I start to get pissed off. And I'm like, no, 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 right? Something's wrong here. So like, you know, just trying trying to find real human interaction is just a challenge, I think.
1: Yeah. And it's, and it's super important. I mean, that's why I was so opposed to the lockdowns is because it ripped that from people. And I knew that would create fissures in society that we would be paying for, for fucking decades. So that's why I was so opposed to it. Other than the fact that I value my own personal freedom and Liberty, I also don't want to live in a dystopic hellscape where everyone's at (laughs) each other's throats because no one's had a hug in a fucking year. It's insane. So yeah, for me personally, um, Beach volleyball has been my outlet, man. Like that's mm. how I've I, how I've maintained my sanity. That's how I've met a lot of the girls I've dated over the years is through beach volleyball. Um, ultimately, like it doesn't usually align up ideologically. But as I've said, most people I think at their core are libertarians. So yeah, I've never I've never struggled to get along with the significant other as long as they're not some like hardcore leftist or hardcore you know Trumpican type person. Like I can get along with it pretty much anybody else in between. So it's not it's not impossible to find, but if I'm trying to like move us to the woods, I'm going to need some really based chick that's like, okay, I'll do whatever you say.
0: <laughs> Look, that, that's one up. Frankly, that's one upside of, you know, the iron fist is usually under the velvet glove. And since 2020, the velvet glove has kind of come off and it's just like yes. raw naked tyranny. And so a lot of sort of normie people who might have thought some of our beliefs are kind of weird are like, no, you're oh. right. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like a, a lot of people are, are open to it now. Like, okay, maybe I should oh Hell yeah. Like it's so hilarious.
1: Cause I have friends from volleyball. I have friends from my life, obviously that, that listen to my show and they used to think I was a crazy person. And now they're like, this dude's a truth teller. You know, like he, <laughs> I, I'm like borderline, uh, prophetic. Cause I, I was always telling people like, We are headed towards tyranny. Like they're they're talking about taking our guns. There's they could do basically anything to us. Like you have no idea how bad this can get and how rapidly it can happen. Now, granted, I didn't think it would happen like this. I didn't think that we would have a lockdown over a pandemic that I think is borderline benign. Uh, but here we are. So now now everyone gets to listen to me and they're like, okay, I'm gonna pay attention to what this guy says from now on because he was right. Like the government is not our savior. Like it is a very dangerous entity in our lives and. And I think that that's probably the greatest thing that came from 2020 is that so many people had that revel, you know, revelatory experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're bringing this home. I know you've been generous with your time. We went over, but I don't feel too bad about it because you also showed up late. Dude, so
1: I owe you, I owe you, please.
0: <laughs> I, t- I texted, I texted Clint. I'm like, I'm here. I feel like the chick getting stood up on a date. Come on. Um, so Besides uh, your podcasting empire that you are building and kind of deploying your capital, looking for opportunity, looking for where you're going to live, what other are you pursuing? Any other adventures? Are you pursuing your rap career? Anything else?
1: Uh, no, not not pursuing the rap career. I don't think I'm good enough for that. To be perfectly honest, but I do appreciate that so many people enjoy my intro music. Um, I think that you know, for me, uh, probably the biggest other exploit or endeavor that i'm taking on is just continuing to try and improve myself as a person like Mm -hmm. i really spend a lot of time i I work out every day i i try to meditate as often as possible i do yoga a lot um i think that it's really important given how just the turmoil of the past 12 months uh, particularly for someone like me who lives alone works alone um it was just tough man it was really hard so like it it made me circle back and be like okay what are the things that you know help with my mental health, and and I had to answer those questions. It's like a social life, and I got I just have to like force myself to continue to pursue these things that make me a more well rounded person because otherwise I can go to a really dark place, particularly with all of my worst fears coming true in a twelve month yeah. period. Um, so I'd say I'd say you know, the podcast is probably my my number one uh, endeavor or like emotional giving that I have to do Uh, but then I spend a ton of time just trying to better myself and then also I'd like to find a significant other that I can you know create a life with because I'm at that stage of life like I had always said I don't want to have kids until I can do so with with you know making them the top priority and like I don't have to worry about money and I'm at that position so like I that was my excuse all these years. I had a lot of good girls that I dated <laughs> over the years that I was like I don't want to have a family yet, I'm sorry. Like I still I'm still got these career achievements that I'm interested in and uh, now I, I I hope that I haven't uh, missed or or foregone all of those opportunities and <laughs> I can't find anybody. Uh, I think it,
0: I think it'll work out eventually though. No nah, man. There's I tell this about people about starting businesses or whatever. Oh, it's too late. I missed my w-. No, you never missed the window. There's never right. a window that's 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 missed. There's always there's always the future. Um, what, uh, what do you think is the biggest, um, like, encouraging? What's, what's the optimistic scenario? What gets you excited? I know it's easy because, and we're, and we're being realistic, right? Not, neither of us like to think this way, and I know, I know that. Right. But when we're talking about all this shit that might hit the fan with the economy and the, all these lockdown policies we've already seen, more stuff that would not be surprised if it's coming, What's the positive scenario, though? What gets you excited? What makes you say, "Hey, here's where I see hope. Here's where I see optimism. Here's what makes me excited for the next two, five, ten years, whatever the, that window is for you." Well, do you want
1: my do you want my positivity about humanity or about America in particular? Let's do let's do both. Okay, uh, I think for the globe, I think that the decentralization movement and the blockchain technology, all of these things are super hopeful uh, i think that it's it has the capacity to undermine and basically dismantle governments globally and i think that that's amazingly hopeful now i think that's part of the reason that we we had such a bad past 12 months is because these governments are feeling it and they are pushing back and it's it's natural that anybody who's holding on to power is going to hold it more tightly as as they feel it slipping away i think the fact that they've held it tightly so tightly unbelievably tightly is evidence that it is slipping away and that's hopeful So mm. I think that that's great As for America, I think that Our greatest reason for optimism Is that you're getting these sanctuary Kind of bill of rights Movements, I think that uh, Nevada uh, Montana has some crazy laws That they're passing where they're like we won't, we won't acknowledge or enforce Any new federal firearms laws Period, I mean that's incredible uh, So I think that you are seeing the the groundwork laid for a potential peaceful secession. And I think that that's the best outcome for America, personally, is that you have a handful of red states, maybe 10 or 12 of them, just break off. And you have, I mean, I'd be happy to see far more secessionary movements than that. I would like to see a dozen in America. But I'm just saying, realistically, it's probably going to be drawn on red and blue grounds. And I think that there's a chance that we go that direction. And if so, uh, if we can have kind of a peaceful USSR style breakup, I think that would be, I know this sounds pessimistic, but I think it's probably as optimistic as I can be about the American governmental system.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that would be a, you know, assuming it happens peacefully, I think it'd be a huge win. Humongous me win. Too. I mean, just yeah. The, the thing that, the thing that slapped the shit out of me and, completely shattered what I thought my Overton window of political possibility was in March of 2020 was the fact that everything happened instantaneously over the entire globe. It was like, yeah, totally. it was like, oh shit, forget federalism. We don't even have like competition between international. Dr- I mean, it was just like blanket everywhere, instantly exact same shit. exact Like holy Incredible. Cow, at least that's what it was that's how it was presented to me and the information available to me maybe other countries were a lot different and, and that information wasn't coming through but it was like whoa and that just made me radically rethink you know and, and that's part of the reason why I think we did end up staying in the United States was like how much better are you gonna find it mm-hmm. you know I don't I don't I don't feel like the U S is like the idea of what the U S was, the U S has never lived up to its own idea, but the idea of the U S died to me in 2020 and all, all final connections to that were severed in terms of the, the actual government and and the idea of what it was. But then when I look at the, the beliefs of the populace here versus everywhere else in the world, like who's got a lower tolerance for, for tyranny. I don't know that I can find many places that have a lower tolerance than some parts of the US, you know.
1: I th- I think Poland is the only place, <laughs> which is crazy. The, po- the Polish people are like hardcore, man. They they are you know, they're having act like that's good to hear what our I didn't Black- know that. yeah what their Black Lives what our Black Lives Matter movement was, that is their anti-lockdown movement. They have been burning and rioting and like going after central banks and shit. Like they are hardcore. So check, check them out. Uh, but yeah, I agree, man. It's it's uh that's what makes it so hard. And, but you know what's weird? And I was talking to uh, my buddy Jose on No Way Jose's podcast. And, and we brought this up is that basically because there's nowhere else to flee, that's almost a white pill. And I know that sounds counterintuitive at first. But because all of the people that value freedom are having the same conversation that you and I had today. And they're saying to themselves, where the fuck else am I going to go? That bodes well. That bodes yeah. well, because that means that they have to stay and fight and yep. they have to work they have to get involved. They have to try and either the agorist route, or if you want to get, get into local politics, something, something to try and alleviate the tyranny locally so that you can weather whatever comes. I think that that's a reason
0: to be hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, and I also, I also want to make you know sure that I'm not putting too much faith in the information I do have access to from around the world, because if I, if I've learned anything, right. you know political events that I was at myself years ago, years and years ago when I worked in politics in the state of Michigan, I would be at an event, a protest or whatever. And then I would see it covered in the local news. And it was literally like they would use like fake pictures from other events and they would just tell straight up lies about it. And this is something that's like super easy to access the information. Right. And so when you've seen that yourself, you're like, oh, I can't trust any pictures that come out of anywhere, any. So like, I never know. And I've seen tweets. Now, I don't know what these are from, but of like Italy France, Germany, England—big, big protests. People are saying they're protests against the lockdown. Hopefully, that's true, and they're not like I don't speak the language in but- some <laughs> rave in 2000 or something. You know what I mean? Like you just—I yeah, I truly have true. never been more skeptical of all information. But I, but I feel there's a part of me that knows. I know the remnants bigger than people think. I know there's more resistance in these countries than people are willing to tell you. You think our government's going to report on all this? St- you know what I mean? We know that we know right. enough to know that there's, there's, there's resistors all over the place. Uh, for sure. just hard to it's funny. It's hard for us to connect and find each other, not because there's, we don't have access to information, but because the market for information is so flooded with, with bullshit that you can't tell what's, what's what anymore. Right. It's not, it's not like cut off the ability to communicate with each other. It's like, okay, that cat's out of the bag. So instead right. the market's just flooded with so much shit. You can't, you can't know anymore, but, but it's yeah. there.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I think that that's, that's the good thing about our worldview though, is that because we are discerning and because we have principles You can, you can just be flooded with all this information and then discern for yourself. Like I I would rather that than having this, like when I was a kid having, you know, five news channels or something (laughs) and, and and just being like, well, this is all the truth. You know, like that's, that's a way worse, uh, I I always, I always
0: love the, you know, the old timers who are like, you know, Oh, all this fake news and all this, whatever, like, we need we need to return journalism to, to do journalists. People need to do actual journalism. And I'm like, like what you believe, like during the Vietnam war or world war II, there were like <laughs> right. two stations and they were totally controlled by government and they had to send their transcripts for approval. <laughs> you think they were doing real journalism back then? You know,
1: <laughs> they, they, they will, they have such a reverential tone when talking about like Walter Cronkite or any of these guys. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just hilarious. I mean, the, of course, you thought you were being told the truth. You had no other information to go off of. So, like, I get it, uh, but you probably weren't, you know. So,
0: <laughs> and now, thank God, you have Liberty Lockdown. So, everybody, go check thank out. Thank God
1: for Isaac Morehouse. That's the check that's out the Clint's podcast, killer.
0: man. It's it's absolutely awesome. Clint, this was a blast, man. I appreciate you absolutely, taking
1: the man. time. Thank you again.